0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. I am so excited for this particular uh, message. I'm sure my wife is excited about it as well. Uh, You can only tolerate quotes from Darwin and the flaws of theories of evolution at dinner every night for so long. (laughs) Me to move on with my life, and we get to, too. Um, But this morning, I get to take on Science and Christianity. Uh, When I say that this could be its own four- or five-week series I mean that so tremendously. Um, we're gonna be moving pretty quick this morning. Um, I got last service out five minutes over, so we'll see what we can do this service. PT got me two minutes that I am abruptly using right now. Um, but uh, uh, I want you to know as we look at this, as we look, we're gonna cover four topics this morning. In those four topics, I sought to answer one simple question. Does science and Christianity conflict or compete In these four areas, those four areas would be uh, creation, the origins of the earth, they would be fine-tuning, the study of fine-tuning, evolution, and miracles. Yes, we're going to cover all four uh, this morning, and I'll get you out in time to enjoy your Super Bowl festivities. But before we get to that, would you just pray with me um, that the Lord would just make his presence and his word known so well. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity Lord, thank you for the men and the women who have come before us and done all the work and the research about our world, about our universe, about your word, and how these things do not compete or conflict whatsoever. And Father God, I just pray for every single heart who will hear the arguments and the thoughts presented this morning, that behind any question, any worry of who God is and if your real Lord is hurt, is confusion, is confusion is abuses of power, that we are not simply answering questions, but we are answering people and the circumstances that they have walked through. So Father God, we just pray that your word would be alive this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. So to get into things, to present that question, can you be a scientific thinker and believe in God? Because here's the deal. If you read uh, uh, the New York Times, you read any science magazines, you read the likes of Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, or Sam Harris, who are all very popular atheists and and scientists in our time, they will have you believe that science has replaced God. Science has replaced Christianity. And that Christianity is like that old Oldsmobile that your dad had from the 60s that no longer runs and he's just hanging on to it that someday it will run again. I think that is a complete contradiction of how God has made the world. So let's ask that question, has God, has science made God or faith unnecessary? Before we dive into our topics, I want to approach something very specific because we live in a time where words are becoming more and more meaningless, I want to properly define for us what science is. Science comes from the Latin word scientia, which means knowledge of all kinds. It was a tool, a method to explore physics, chemistry, biology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, what has happened in modern day, this discovery of science, these tools, this knowledge, has made its way from a tool or a realm of study. And it has turned into its own type of philosophy, which is now known as scientism. Scientism, properly, completely, accurately defined. I want you to know, I allowed the facts just to let them be. This is the proper definition of scientism. Excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. The opinion that science and the scientific method are the best or only way to render truth about the world and reality. That's an interesting thought. That's an interesting definition. And what you'll hear if you read books like The God Delusion by by, uh, 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 Richard Dawkins, which I've read, is that they say things like this. You give us enough time, allow technology to catch up with us, You give us enough technique, you give us enough data, and eventually we will solve all the problems and issues and questions that humanity and nature have to give us. Sounds a lot like faith to me. Sounds a lot like a worldview that places its faith that someday the answers to the questions we have will answer themselves. And what has, problem, what, has what has become the problem with science into scientism is it took a, a tool and made it a faith-based worldview. So when we talk about science versus scientism, there has to be an important distinction. Important to note, the one definition of faith is fidelity, meaning complete, loyal, or trust in. Science may hold some answers to our world and to the natural running of things, but it is not the answer. It is not the truth. It was never meant to be that. John gives us the answer, the truth. In John chapter one, verses one through five, he says, in the beginning was the word. It already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it if you know your history you will know it was the church that founded the study of science and I came across this quote over and over again it's been said many times I don't know who to give it credit to it says that men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver If you've taken any Greek whatsoever, or you've heard a sermon on John chapter 1, you will know that that word, the word, the word God, is the word logos. One translation for that word is logic, reasoning, teaching. It is the reason, the very things that make science dependable and repeatable. It is what they find their structure in this truth. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth in the life, what he, what he meant was he is the way to salvation. He is, the, he is the epitome of life itself. And what he meant when he said, I am the truth, is not that he simply said true things, but he is the very substance for why we even have reasoning and logic and mathematics as a dependable science in the first place. Because here's the problem with science. It never gets past what we can see and touch and hear with our ears. It never gets past that. It never gets past the why. Science is a powerful tool to discover the what of our world. No one's denying that. But it has zero merit. It completely fails the fundamental question of why. Science is powerless to answer how and why the universe came into being. You can never observe with science outside of what brought it into existence. Here's a simple question to illustrate my point. Very simple question. And I want you to think through this with me. Why is the water boiling? If I were to place water in a kettle, why is the water boiling? You might say, well, it's boiling because of heat exchange and heat from the flame, It's been conducted through a metal base of a kettle, and that's agitated the molecules, and therefore, water is boiling. Or you might say, the water is boiling because I want a cup of coffee at the moment. Two completely different explanations. One is scientific in nature. It explains the what. It explains the, mo- the molecular structure of why it boils. The second, though, is what? It's personal. It's intentional. It speaks of a will or a desire or an agency. The why of why the water is boiling. And here's the deal. Without the why, without the intention, without the desire, without the personal Intimate reasoning, you never even get to start the scientific method. You could argue the second reason, the second explanation is the more important. It's the more, it's the more complete. And both of them create a complete uh, uh, explanation. Completely different. Don't get it wrong. But they do not conflict with each other whatsoever. What do they do? They complement one another. Both create a full explanation. Science is a great tool for answering the what of the natural world. But it has no ability to explain the why of life and purpose like we find in Scripture. The Apostle Paul seemed to have understood this when he was writing the book of Romans. Because he seems to give us this sort of prophetic warning uh, in in chapter 1. He says, for his invisible attributes, talking about Christ, talking about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. where we find ourselves in the scientific and philosophical argument as we stand that as we become more enlightened more educated informa- more information is given to us i believe more information is given to us in a day than like people in the in the in the 19th century had their entire lifetime but as we have more information, we've become more self-centered, more foolish, more ignorant, less able to reason simple concepts that have been laid out by Scripture. You have to understand something. Science and God don't compete any more with each other than Henry Ford and automotive engineering uh, as explanations for why the car exists. The two are necessary for each other. Now, let's talk about that pesky creation story. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You have to understand something about this specific line, just those words right there. That was one of the most controversial ideas up until October of 1965. Because up until October of 1965, the science community as a whole said that the universe was infinite. It did not have a beginning. This whole idea of God creating the universe is, 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 is akin to believing in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy. That is what science said. But on October 1965, with the use of Einstein's theory of relativity and the use of scripture, science once and for all said we can, with math, pinpoint the exact time in which the universe was created. It was actually a Belgian priest by the name of George Lemaitre proved the universe had a beginning based on his belief of the holiness of God's infallibility word and the use of Einstein's work. He was the first person to believe this. And what's interesting about this theory is he came up with this idea, began to put work in it, and all of his colleagues began to make fun of him. They said this guy's dumb. There is no way that that line holds any merit whatsoever in in whatsoever in the scientific method. So much so that they coined his theory mockingly the Big Bang Theory. It was a joke. It was the idea that this guy is a fool, and he is—he's creating a mute point, and this thing simply doesn't exist. But over time, and again, 1965—if you want to look this up—science conclusively concluded the universe has a beginning. And now, some of you might say, "Well, that conflicts with God." No, no, no. The Big Bang. This is an event. It's not an explanation. It doesn't create purpose or a plan or the why behind the what. The why comes from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. For through him, God, meaning Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all Things together. Science has zero bearing on giving us an explanation quite like that. I'll even go as far to say there is not another philosophy or religion out there in the planet. There is not another historical book that offers us an explanation of why we are here quite like Scripture. Because usually science means when we think of God, we think of God of the gaps. That's an idea that. Because we don't understand lightning quite yet, we just invented the lightning God. And then until science steps in and gives us the explanation, then we can get rid of it. But here's the deal. As Colossians points out, we're not talking about a God that's part of the show. We're talking about the God that is the entire show. We're talking about a God that is personal, intelligent. He is the almighty creator. That's the God we are talking about. Now, when it comes to the creation story, Genesis one through three, I want, because of time, I want to present to you what is one of the most agreed upon interpretations of the first three verses of the Bible. The issue with this is oftentimes people look at Genesis and say, hey, the Bible only says that the earth is 6,000 year old. Fun fact, the Bible never says that. The Bible never says the earth is blank years old. We have an estimation, thanks to genealogies of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the, the, the timing the Bible gives the earth, or history, is roughly 6,000 to 15,000 years. That much is known. Science says that the earth is 4 to 4.5 billion years old, with the universe being roughly 13.8 billion years old. Now, I want to point out a couple of things before we get into this. I personally, because of the evidence, stand and lean more towards a young earth. I do. I do also lean, and I think you'd have to do a lot of mental gymnastics, to a literal six-day creation. Because not only do we have it in Genesis, but Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 and Exodus chapter 31 verse 17 all affirm the literal idea and supernatural ability of God creating the earth in six days. Now, what we have here is a problem, not of the data, but how you interpret the data. For instance, you can look at the geology and carbon dating, which there's a ton of flaws with carbon dating. Uh, There's a lot of, again, mental gymnastics done to get around that because a lot of people will say that carbon dating, carbon 14 dating isn't any good after 20,000 years. But it's a problem when you say that the earth is 4 billion years old. But if I were to observe Adam and Eve on their first day of life, follow me, first day of life with the scientific method and what we have now, I would come to what conclusion? That Adam and Eve are decades old, when in fact they would be one day old. What you have to grapple with when you're talking about creation and you're talking about is it billions or is it thousands? is whether you believe in a supernatural God or not. It all boils down to that. And now I want to get into something that actually, even if we found out the earth was 4 billion years old, it gets rid of it. Genesis chapter 1, when verses 1 and 2 are what we would call the initial creation act. And a better way to uh, interpret Genesis chapter 1 is not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But it says, when God began to create... That's important. That word create, there's a a tense, it's it's called a perfect tense, meaning that this is an event that took place before the storyline. And then when you get into verse three, the author then moves to what we call a narrative tense, meaning now here is the story I want to tell you. The author is doing something very specific that says, hey, this stuff existed, here's the backdrop, the heavens and the earth were created, now God is about to establish something here. So what does that do? It allows us the ability to hold to a literal six day creation and leave earth and the universe's origins indeterminate. If you're a Star Wars fan, verses one and two are the yellow scrolling lines. As it comes up, (laughs) verse 3 is the movie. Got that? Now here's one more problem. Criticizing Genesis for being scientifically inaccurate is dumb. It is like criticizing one of my three daughters for not making a very good boy. I know what I said there. It would go against every bit of rational uh, reason and logic that we have to say. This book has to be scientifically accurate for it to be uh, uh, plausible. Here's what Genesis is. Because before this time, the creation story was chaos. It was chance. It was randomness. It was war between other gods. And the writer settles in to say, no. No. That creation has a creator which science is catching up to. And there is a plan and a purpose which science still denies and is still wrestling with to this day. It is a rebuttal to the narrative happening. You want to know what we do know? History and archaeology tell us roughly 11,800 years ago, Something started with the human story. You cannot prove anything more than that when it comes to the creation story. Now, fine-tuning. This is a fun one. This is a fun one. Oh, there's there's your second point. Careful study of scripture and true application of the scientific method remain complementary, not in opposition to each other. It was uh, Galileo who said the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics, and that brings us to fine tuning. You have to understand something about fine tuning. These are equations that are unbelievably hard to comprehend. Okay, I gave. I'm going to give you just two of them this morning, just two, and these are the two simplest ones I could find. The first one would be the gravitational constant. If this number was varied by more than just one in 10 to the 60th parts, no life or the universe as we know would exist. Would you look at that number? That is more cells in your body and more seconds that have ticked by since creation. And if our gravitational constant was off by that small of a number, no life, not even the complex life known as human life, would be able to exist. Paul Davies, I found him, he's an atheist or agnostic uh, a scientist, said the accuracy of even the gravitational constant can be compared to firing a bullet at a one inch target on the other side of the observable universe, 20 billion light years away, and hitting the target blindfolded because we're still talking about chance, not skill. The, are you comprehending? The odds that this requires. Next, which is even more complex, the expansion rate constant. A change in this constant, a mere one of the 10 and 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly and light, It would permit life of any kind being possible. Would you bring up the next one? This is comical. We had to make a whole slide for that number. That is double the last. When I say that this is the tip of the iceberg of the constants that are required for life to be possible in our universe and on our earth, science now agrees there are at least 34 of these constants that all have to be precisely where they lie in order for you and I to exist and have life and have breath and have being. It's interesting about the expansion, rate right? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, it says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This verse was mocked by the science community as well. Well, if God stretched things out, well, if there was an expansion, if he spread it out like a curtain, where is evidence for that? And now, thanks to the scientific community, we now have science that we can add to passages like Isaiah chapter 40. Fred Hoyle says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me to so overwhelmingly as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. I want to summarize this with one illustration. Imagine with me, you committed a heinous crime. And the government decided, all right, we need to do capital punishment in this moment. We're going we're gonna to get rid of you. But they decided to have some fun with it, apparently. And they hire 50 of the most accurate marksmen known to, to, to the world right now. And they take all 50 of them and they place them within about six feet of you, all 50. And they give each and every single one of them the chance to fire at you to end your life. And imagine with me as one, two, 10, 25, 50 all go, every single one of them miss you. And not only miss you, but they don't even touch you. Not a single hair on your head is missing after that exercise. Those are the sort of odds we are talking about for your life to exist right now. You can have chance. You can say it's all, we just got really, 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 really lucky. But you have to wrestle with that illustration and say, either you got really lucky or something, or should we say someone, wanted you to live. Science has come up with three theories for fine-tuning. One would be necessity that it was necessary for the universe to exist. There is actually no scientific evidence whatsoever to support that. There's, there's nothing. I, I literally tried to find an argument for it. There's nothing. Second would be chance. Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? We just solved that. Sure, you can have that. But the odds are unfathomable. The third and most likely is design. Psalms chapter 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. It is the advancement of science, not the ignorance of it, that has revealed the careful creation, curation and precision of our creator. that's unbelievable now my favorite topic to discuss evolution this one is so bad I'm just going to be real with you uh, if you are interested in this topic uh, look up third wave biology it is a new movement of experts and biologists that are coming out and saying hey hey, hey that whole Charles Darwin thing we uh, we actually affirm him that his theory should be thrown out and we'll get into that in just a moment First off and foremost, by, with, with the, with biblically, theologically, in order for evolution to hold weight, you have to agree with that paradise in Genesis 1 wasn't paradise. You would have to affirm that. You would say that when God said it is good or it is very good, what he meant that it's good but with room for improvement. So that, there is no evidence whatsoever biblically to support that. Now there are well-meaning Christians who believe that. And I, and I don't think it's a salvic issue, but I think you have a lot of mental gymnastics to overcome. Now, I want to read to you a few things about Charles Darwin and what he said about the theory of evolution. Charles Darwin said this, and it's a very heady, and I'll summarize it, it says, but just in proportion as this process of extermination has acted on an enormous scale, so must the number of intermediate varieties, that term, intermediate varieties, I want to hone in on, which have formerly existed, but truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. What is he saying there? He is essentially saying that if my theory is to be true, evolutionary, the the, the theory of evolution then you have to be able to find the link from dinosaur to chicken. That quote was recorded in 1859. It has now been 164 years, and there has not been found a single, single intermediate variety that we know of. Now, some of you who... Maybe you majored in biology like my wife. You'll scream at me right now at your seat. Not loud, because that's, that's rude. Um, but you'll say, no, 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 there are these intermediate varieties. Let's talk about it. There is one. It is, it is considered the smoking gun of intermediate varieties known as archaeoterics. It is the example given for this theory. This is, a, this is a specimen that is said to be somewhere between a chicken or a bird and a dinosaur. And now you have, there's two major flaws with this specimen. The first being, when they initially found this specimen, they did not believe that dinosaurs had feathers. They believed they looked like what we see in Jurassic Park. These monstrous reptilian-like creatures that were highly aggressive. Now, decades later, we are now finding specimens of dinosaurs and science is now backtracking and say, yeah, dinosaurs more than likely had feathers. That's one flaw. Because it was the weight of it was see, dinosaurs don't have feathers, this thing has feathers. I'm making this overly simple. And then that's how we got to the chicken. Following me? <laughs> now, a person named Colin Patterson and his team at the British National History Museum. There is no other team that has been more in charge or taking more care of this specific fossil, Archaeoterics, right? And he came away with one conclusion, and I wanna read it for you. And you're only gonna have partial on the screens, and in your you'll have full on the screen, you only have partial in your handout, because someone challenged me on this and told me I was taking it out of context. So I went and did more research. I didn't take it out of context. Here's what it says. This is him talking to a colleague. That, that, that there's a lack of, of examples of these intermediate varieties. He says, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any, fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. I will lay it on the line. There is not one such fossil, a fossil which is ancestral or transitional, for which one could make a watertight argument. It is 100% on the science community to stop giving evolution this special treatment because it completely relies on outliers and exceptions to the evidence we've been given. You have been lied to. There is no There is nothing out there that affirms evolution as a law, which is why it remains a theory is because it cannot transition itself from theory into law. It's why we have the law of gravity and not the theory of gravity, because not only is it observable, but it is repeatedly observable. Evolution has yet to be truly observable, let alone repeatedly observable, which is the true litmus test for the scientific method. I want to approach one more thing with Darwin, I promise we'll move on. I found this rather interesting. This is Darwin speaking. The horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, our reasoning, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? What is he saying? Even if evolution proves true, you should not trust the conclusions you come to because what you are after is not truth, but evolutionary advantage. If evolution proves to be true, this is all a farce. We don't come to reasoning or logic. We come to that thing that Darwin coined, survival of the fittest, and you're only going to come to conclusions that benefit you and your survival, not truth. Evolution, as far as I'm concerned, I welcome anyone to have a conversation with me. Some of the most brilliant minds on the planet is dead on arrival. I mean that, man. If there's any theory I would look at and what we're talking about, Evolution is one of the worst. Now, miracles—just a small topic of miracles. It's an important thing that we approach because, oftentimes, it's the unexplainable, especially amongst uh, millennials and younger, that we have to have reasoning to compete with, with, with Christianity. That—that that it was actually was it Thomas uh, Edison? Is that what I'm talking about? No. Where's his name? Yes, Thomas Edison. Who, uh, he was the one who went through his Bible and he cut out, uh, no, Thomas Jefferson, I apologize. He edited out all the miraculous signs in the Gospels because he believed that they had no place and they were in the place of metaphor. I want to say something very specific right now. It becomes dangerous when we don't affirm things like a literal six-day creation. It becomes dangerous when we don't affirm that the miraculous is possible. Why? Because what does 1 Corinthians chapter 15 say? It says, if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Paul is saying, if a dead man named Jesus Christ did not get up out of the grave, then this whole thing is not bankable. It's not real. It should, not, it should be discarded. But if he did, then that same power that raised him from the grave lives in you. That is a powerful thing. And what I have become so convinced of, dare I say it, there might be an agenda out there to make us believe that our life is purposeless, that it is just an accident. Because if we believe in the accident more than we believe in the power and the resurrection and the intervention of God, we will delineate what God wants for us and we'll go more towards what we feel. You know, these first century Christians, they weren't dumb. We oftentimes like to think they were just dumb people. A lot of the laws of nature we know now were founded around this time with Greek thought. Luke actually says in Acts that it was educated men who first uh, had opposition to the resurrection being possible. Because here's the thing the ancient world knew something we do dead bodies don't get up out of graves, it's really simple. So how do we wrestle with this? Because here's what is said. Because we know natural law, because we know the way science works, because we understand the decomposition of the body, it makes it impossible that things like miracles are impossible. Okay, let's go there. Imagine I have $10. And imagine my wife says, hey honey, you did a good job today, here's 20 bucks. And then imagine I'm on my way into my home later today and I find $10 on the street. And I come into my office this week and I have a top drawer in my desk and I put that, what is it, $40. I put it in the top drawer, I put it and I lock it and I go away for for the weekend. We're gonna go on a nice family trip and I come back on Monday. You would expect that I would, when I unlock it, I would find what? $40, great. That is called the law of arithmetic or math. Now, what if I open that drawer and there is only $10? What would your first conclusion be? That the laws of arithmetic have been suspended and that math no longer exists for that one moment and that I have to make an exception for it? No. You would conclude that a thief has intervened in the normal working of things. Natural law and science do nothing to explain away the intervention of God. In fact, they require more of an explanation because it gives us a reference point. We have, and he's not sitting there now, but Pastor Jeff, he's our our closest thing to a miracle. Should have been dead, but something or someone wanted him alive, and it intervened in the normal working of things. To come to the conclusion that, well, we just can explain that away with science is intellectually lazy. Man, do I get fired up about this if you can't tell? It's lazy. The understanding of science requires that we begin to look into these things. You wanna know the two most common things in every civilization known in history? UFOs and miracles. There has never been a culture on the history of the planet that hasn't affirmed the existence of miracles. Again, you can have chance. You can have the anomaly. Or something or someone is intervening on our behalf and working things out to a distinct plan and purpose. Whereas scientism attempts to explain away all the things that we have and it attempts to try to create this natural order of things. And oftentimes the science community will say, you have a blind faith. We could not be any less of a blind faith. John chapter 20 says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Christianity is one of the most evidence-based world belief systems we have ever known. I will tell you the one secret you need to topple the entire Christianity perspective Show us the body of Jesus Christ. Skeptics, historians, theories for centuries now have attempted to explain away the person and the miracle of Jesus Christ' bodily resurrection, and not one single shred of evidence has ever been found that they found his body again. Why? Because someone has intervened on our behalf and has. Destroy the normal working of things in the natural order so that we might believe. Show me the evidence. I like evidence. And you have to understand something about the miracles, not just the resurrection, but the miracles that Jesus performed. They were never magic tricks you know, uh, you know, designed to impress and, and coerce people. You never see Jesus lighting a tree on fire or turning someone into a frog. What were the purpose of his miracles? To heal the sick to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. Why? Because we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Think of all that science is attempting to correct and solve. The use of of, 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 of paralyzed limbs, elongate our life, uh, uh, solve world hunger, fix this whole death problem. We've moved into this place that science can solve the one thing that Jesus Christ came to solve. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come through the miraculous to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. Church, his miracles are not just proofs to our minds but they are a testament to our hearts of how Christ will reign when he is on that throne fully realized. The the miraculous isn't an explanation uh, of, of, of science until we get the formula down. It is God intervening on our behalf to show you, I made you to be like that. I made you to be fully realized I made you to be fully restored. Jesus' miracles, they might be a challenge to our mind, but they are a promise to us that when he comes again, and he will come again, that every wrong will be righted. Would you stand with me? I hope this morning I gave you something to think about. I hope this morning, I hope I got rid of this idea that we can kind of have God and kind of have evolution or we can kind of have God and we can kind of have chance. It's one or the other. It's either we got really, really, really lucky or all 50 of those marksmen missed and something or someone wants you alive for a purpose. Would you pray with me, Father God? I pray for our hearts this morning. That all of this knowledge would make it past our mental uh, 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 faculties, Lord, and get into our hearts, Lord. That you are the thing we're all looking for the thing that science is attempting to 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 answer the thing that we attempt to live and fulfill on our own every single day all finds its purpose and sustainment as paul says in jesus christ that father god the answer is here he is here lord i just pray for salvation all over this place that father god like me that it would not just be that in his spirit and in the knowledge of who he is brought me from a sinner to a saint. And that, Father God, we would walk away from this place challenge, rethinking what we know, and we would walk away, Lord, attempting to answer these questions in our own hearts and minds. That, Father God, Jesus Christ is Lord, and in him, all the answers of truth and reasoning find their purpose. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Calvary Church. I love you tremendously. If you need prayer whatsoever, we'll have some of our elders and pastors up here. We hope to see you on Wednesday for the uh, baptism service. Love you guys. Have a great week.